Hi, I'm Emma. I'm Shannon. And welcome to this podcast doesn't exist. Pew, 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 pew. How many times did it take us to do the intro? We'll never tell. I mean, we haven't seen each other in a week. This is That can't be our excuse no, every week. You know what? It is our excuse every single week. We haven't seen each other in a week. Uh, this is my first episode since our summer hiatus. Yeah, since vacay. Um, so this is me settling back in. Last week was Shannon settling back in. She's back in the groove. She's there. She's rolling along. I am just now stepping on that escalator situation. What are they called? People movers at the airport. That's yeah. me. I'm I'm slowly getting on there. A little wobbly at first, but I'll get there. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm here now, man. That was a great visual bit. Thank you. And if you're playing along on our bingo card, you can check off visual bit. A bingo card, you say, what, where, who? Well, you can find that and our socials and a lot of other wonderful things at our website, thispodcastdoesnexist.com. Dot com. And most of our transcripts should be up by now. I've been working wow. sl- slowly. all of them? No, I said most. I didn't say all. I said most. Okay, but how much is most? <laughs> um, I'm at about half right now. Wow. So I would assume that's most, if you have a, a little over half by the time this goes out. So yeah, we're getting there slowly, but it's happening. Just trucking along, my man. Choot, choot. Choot, choot. <laughs> It's not the sound of Chuck me. and toot toot were what came true, true. together. True, 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 mother truckers. <laughs> Who are we? What are we doing here? We're best friends. We're talking about everything that don't have an answer. Anything is spooky. Anything that is, you know, a little mysterious, a little unsolved, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So obviously it's a tiny bit chaotic. But uh, we hope you enjoy that. That is kind of our unintentional shtick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the murp and derp of, of it all. Okay. I think we might be set to just dive right in. Friends, up top, I do suggest you uh, buckle in. This does involve murder. And this is real life stuff. Uh, so if this is not what you're feeling like listening to today, I don't go into anything graphic. There's nothing, you know, that's very explicit in that capacity. But if you would rather not listen to murder today, go ahead and click on a different episode. Go go hang out. Oh, Shannon's leaving. She would like to go click on a different episode. <laughs> I almost... I almost tripped on my blankie. Yeah. <laughs> As usual, Shannon is, is burrito in a blanket. committed to the bit. I mean, it was <laughs> like been a really good... funny, though. You just hear me go, <laughs> <laughs> on the ground. <laughs> I am glad you didn't fall over, but yes, you're correct. It would have been very funny. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so if, if you would not like to, unfortunately, you have to stay here. So Yeah, which really... <laughs> Sorry, man. Trapped you. Made you do a podcast with me. Rewrite this contract. All right. So today, let's just dive right in. (laughs) You're like, I was going to introduce it. No, I'm going to sneak attack her. Yep. Like a murderer. (laughs) No, I am not a murderer. A music-loving demon straight from hell. Chaotic ethnic cleansing. A simple rivalry gone wrong. Any and all of these could explain the terrifying reign of the Axeman of New Orleans. Okay. You got anything? You know nope. anything about it? Great. Nope. All right, buddy, let's go. You buckle? What should I be buckling into? Ooh, like an early Ford uh, uh, Model T. Well, I don't think they had seatbelts. <laughs> you could strap yourself in. <laughs> let's, let's just shut the door. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> it was the late 1910s in New Orleans. The city and its surrounding communities buzzed with the dawn of jazz. Syncopated notes became the heartbeat of the city, and although filled with both immigrants and native Orleanians, most all fell in step to the rhythm. But not everyone. There were many in the city, mostly the upper-crust white folk, who saw anything less than Debussy degrading, the out-of-tempo notes off-putting, and the heartbeat of someone well beneath them. The influx of immigrants had brought new businesses along with new music, and some businesses were easier to manage within certain communities. This rang true for new immigrants, mostly Italians, to the Big Easy, as many of them settled in as grocers. 
Thank you. <laughs> She's clapping for it me. Felt, it felt like the beginning of Ragtime. Oh. The musical. Yeah. Like, just imagine. If was, we had a production budget, like, the jazz slowly comes in under you talking, like, <laughs> you know, like, it's just, like, floating along under your little prologue. If only I were that good. Joseph Maggio was one such Italian-American. He lived in the back of his corner grocery store on the west side of the city in the 13th Ward. He and his wife Catherine occupied one room, and another was shared by Joseph's two brothers, Jake, a cobbler, and Andrew, a barber. Now, let me explain just a little bit about the ward situation. New Orleans is separated into multiple wards across the city. It just kind of a little bit like the boroughs in New York, mm-hmm. or the, the, I was going to say the districts in D.C., but essentially that's the same thing. Where yeah. it's just, it's easier like to... like neighborhoods, like exactly. little chunks. Yeah. Around 4.45 in the morning of May 23rd, 1918, Jake Maggio heard the sounds of someone in clear distress through the wafer-thin wall of his bedroom. He jumped up and struggled to pull Andrew out of bed, fresh from a bender he had only arrived home from two hours before. Andrew had been drafted and had been out drinking to enjoy his last few days of freedom before heading off to join the Great War. The First World War was still going on at this point. It won't end until November of 1918. When he was finally roused, the pair went to go see what was causing the sounds from their brother's room. The sight they came upon was too gruesome to bear. Catherine lay on the ground, throat cut and head broken in. Joseph lay half off the bed, beaten to a pulp as well, with what looked like axe wounds covering his head. He appeared dead, but when his brothers approached, his eyes opened and he tried to get out of bed. Bestie, no. I know, right? Like, out of all things, just at least continue lying down. Stay (laughs) still. The authorities were swiftly summoned, and Joseph was taken to Charity Hospital, where he died soon after arriving. Catherine was declared dead at the scene. Both brothers were taken into custody as suspects in the brutal murder. They were confused but cooperated, and within two days, the police cleared them of all charges. It really did appear that someone had broken into the home and murdered the couple just a wall away from their family. The police determined that the motive wasn't robbery, but the murderer wanted them to think so. The bedroom was in shambles, but there was $100 under Joseph's pillow. Catherine's jewelry was in plain sight on the dresser, and there was even more jewelry in a box under the safe in clear view in the room. The authorities also found a panel chiseled out of the back door. Now, when you think of like a door that has like those rectangles or squares or whatever... The one of those, usually it was like the bottom one that was underneath the doorknob was chiseled off. Like mm-hmm. it just chiseled around it and knocked it out. So, so they could reach, reach in, in yeah. and open it. Initially, police thought that they used that opening in order to get in because the door was always locked when they would go to get in afterwards. But it feels like a sneaky, weird little thing for him to just like reach in and relock it once he leaves. Right. And well, and that's quieter than smashing a window. Yeah. Well, and one of the sources that I used also described it as, like, literally only a child or a circus performer could have gotten through that door panel. It was a raccoon! Yeah. Like, it would, or a very murderous cat. A murderous-minded cat. That was what they, what they had written down. I was like, that is hilarious. But yeah, so panel chiseled out of the back door. And then there were the murder weapons themselves. An axe that had clearly been used in the act was found half underneath the bathtub, which felt like a taunt. Like, you'd open the bathroom door, and it was, like, kind of hidden, but very much not hidden. The razor that had been used on both victims' throats was found in the bathroom as well. Both items were from the Maggio home. It seemed the murderer had made do with whatever tools were at hand. Blood-stained clothing was also found at the scene, which seemed to indicate that the murderer had changed into clean clothes before leaving. There was also an unfired gun with the clothing, but police were unsuccessful in tracing it back to its owner. I can imagine at that point in history it was probably extremely hard to do so. Yeah. 
Baffled and at a loss for suspects, the police and the public barely had time to recover from the murders when the shadowy figure struck again. Oh. Yeah. It doesn't get much better from this point on. I'm just warning you now. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> I feel like I'm that dog meme that's like... With a fire. This is fine. <laughs> this is fine. Just sitting here holding my mug. Mm-hmm. This is fine. This is fine. John Zanka went to deliver his baked goods like he always did to Louis Bessemer's 7th Ward Corner Grocery at 7 a.m. on June 27, 1918. When he made it to the back door of the grocery coom home where he usually dropped off his wares, he saw that a panel had been chiseled out of it. He knocked hesitantly, and a profusely bleeding Louis opened the door. He was somehow still able to walk after receiving an enormous head wound. The authorities arrived as quickly as possible, and Louis and his wife, who had been found barely alive on the bed, were taken to Charity Hospital. Both had been severely wounded by axe blows to the head. The weapon, an axe, was found in the house, this time in the gallery, and was again owned by the victims. Nothing had been taken, clear to the authorities, since there was a large amount of cash in the grocery section of the building. This time, police were searching for fingerprints, but the murderer was one step ahead. The police found rubber gloves, bloody and discarded within the home, a defiant tip of the hat to the detectives, and they found no clear fingerprints. So at this point in time, because I did look into this, I was like, fingerprinting? Really? Apparently, at the end of the 19th century, fingerprinting had become a huge thing in Scotland Yard, and American police departments in major cities had started to use the system that they had constructed, Mm -hmm. but they aren't dusting for fingerprints. Mm -hmm. Essentially, if there was a bloody fingerprint left, they would have been able to kind of press something against it to lift it or something like that or photograph it to try and match it against anything that might be in their system, in their fingerprinting system. Um, And so they were doing this at all of their murder scenes. And never once was a fingerprint found. Mm. Both victims survived, but Mrs. Bessemer had a secret. She wasn't Mrs. Bessemer. Her name was actually Harriet Lowe, Louis' mistress. To add to the drama, the real Mrs. Bessemer arrived two days after the attack from Cincinnati, where she had been staying with relatives while ill. (gasps) The newspapers flew with this story it was a huge so sensational of like oh my gosh are they okay we hope there there's an axe man out there wait a second this is your mistress yo who the f is this (laughs) for the next like year it would almost always go back to the bessemer case and be like Yo, but this guy had a mistress, and isn't this so dramatic, and isn't this sensational? And it's like, guys, leave him alone. We get it. (laughs) We get it. It didn't stop there. Both victims received severe head injuries, so as I go into this next section, just remember that recalling memories and correct ones at that would have been extremely difficult. You also, like, if someone tells you something and you have a head injury, you're like, yeah, sure, that's believable. You're not, memory already is fallible. Memory with a head injury, more so. So just take that into account. When asked who had attacked them, Louis said that he had seen, in his words, a, quote, mulatto man, end quote, before the final blow had rendered him unconscious. He had woken up later to find Harriet in a pool of her own blood and brought her to the bed, and then heard John Zanka knock on the door and went to answer it to get help. The police took Louis's story at face value and found 41-year-old Louis Obukon, an African-American employee of Louis Bessemer's, as their first suspect. He had conflicting stories of where he was the night of the attack, but they could find nothing that linked him to the crime and so were forced to let him go. A few unnamed others were questioned, but when Harriet told the police who she had seen, they were confused. Harriet described a tall, heavy-set white man had attacked her. But Harriet had given a few conflicting stories in the days following, 
including telling police that she believed Louis to be a German spy. Remember, we're still in the Great War, like World War I still going on. So this was a huge thing for the police. They were like, <gasps> a what? The police took this accusation very seriously and arrested Louis on potential treason while they searched his home and business for any indication that he was working for the German side of the Great War. Louis insisted he was not a spy. He was Polish, for one, not German. And while he spoke Russian, Polish, and Yiddish, he used these to communicate with family overseas in letters. He had only been in New Orleans for three months, and the police, while still suspicious, were unable to pin him down for any kind of treason and released him. Harriet, the very next day, said, I couldn't possibly have said Louis was a spy. <laughs> Ma'am. <laughs> yeah. What? On August 5th, 1918, Harriet was dying from complications from a surgery she had undergone to remedy her partial face paralysis from mm. getting hit in the head. Yeah. Before she passed, she said that the man who attacked her was Louis Bessemer. Louis was arrested that night and thrown in jail on charges of attempted murder. But for many, Louis would very soon be proven innocent. Uh-oh. The same night Harriet died and Louis was arrested, the attacker struck again. <laughs> I do love your little stings. You're like... <gasps> I am the audio effect board. <gasps> Isn't there that TikTok audio that does that? Yeah. <laughs> Literally, you ran out. I, uh, I am just an amalgamation of memes. I am not a person anymore. <laughs> I'm yeah. just memes in a trench coat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is I. <laughs> okay, moving on to the sad stuff. Sorry. Oh, oh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 28-year-old Edward Schneider came home from his night shift at the lumber mill to find his eight-month pregnant wife in bed with her scalp cut open, teeth <laughs> missing, and a face covered in blood. No. I know. When the authorities arrived and took the still-alive Anna Schneider to the hospital, she couldn't tell them much about her assault beyond that she had been awoken long enough to see a dark form over her with an axe. She had only enough time to scream before the blow knocked her out. The police were confused again by what they found. This time, the attacker had entered the home through an open window, not a back door panel as they had seen before. Which makes sense. If it's open, use it. He had used a lamp to attack Anna from her bedside table. Oh. Seven dollars had been taken, but nothing else from the home was missing. Schneider's hatchet had been taken from the home, but was left in the middle of the backyard. The Schneiders were also the only victims so far who did not own a grocery. Both were factory mill workers. Even so, after the report of the incident was known, the Times-Picanye newspaper read in the headline, quote, Police believe an axe man may be active in city, end quote, which is where he gets his name. Hmm. Despite her attack, Anna recovered, and two days after being found beaten in her bed, gave birth to a healthy baby girl. Yay! I know. Like, the one bright spot in all of this. Thank goodness! Yeah. A very, like... Very happy moment. And this quote made me giggle. This is from The Axeman Came From Hell by Kevin McQueen. Quote, Repeatedly, the Axeman case bears eloquent testimony as to the durability of the human head. End quote. <laughs> L-O-L. <laughs> it was like, it was a little side thing, too. He was just kind of like, oh, yeah, and this, like. Ah, human skulls. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> it was so good. I mean, that's good, though. You know, the number of times I've, like, bonked my head on a cabinet, I'm glad it didn't just, like, crack like an egg. Right? Like, I'm good that it's difficult to give yourself a concussion <laughs> based on the amount of times that I've fallen over. Like, yeah. <laughs> initially, police arrested an ex-convict that had run from them near the area. But after questioning, they couldn't link him to the crime. When asked why he ran, he said he ran because he was being chased by police and didn't want to go back to jail. Yeah, I mean, hmm, so you turn a corner, you see police officers and they're like, hey, you stop. You're like, uh, uh I am running what? away. 
<laughs> I mean, that mm, that unfortunately sounds like something that you could have pulled from modern day yep. newspapers. Unfortunately. With the axe in the backyard and no real suspects, the police were openly speculating that this attacker was the same one from the Bessemer and Maggio cases and could have been responsible for previous attacks as well, because this is a, unfortunately, a large city yeah. with a lot well, of crime. Well, and there's always an escalation of the behavior. Exactly. I've watched Criminal Minds. Yeah. I haven't. <laughs> I, uh, part of me Sorry, really Shelby. wants to, because I've never watched it sequentially. It was always just, like, something that was on, on, like, the ID channel or whatever when I was, <laughs> divorce kid problems, when I was, like, down chilling at my dad's house. But there are, like, through lines with the cast. Like, yeah. people get married and have babies and, like, leave and fake their deaths and come back and whatever. And I want to, like catch up on the characters but i'm i don't i'm like uh, you already have too many other things that you're like like too many other tv shows where you're like yes i'm watching this all the way through yes i'm watching this all the way through no but i've i've concluded like i finished scandal oh that's true you have finished quite a few making progress through the west wing i might actually finish it this time i'm in the middle of season six nice and honestly, I really like having a show because it's like, oh, if I have time to watch TV, I know what I'm watching. That's true. Versus you don't have when to, you like, aren't through. binging a show, you're like, do I want to watch a movie? Do I want to watch a documentary? It takes, it takes more no, time no, no. to. F- and by the time it out. you're just like, screw it, I'll just sit on the couch and scroll through TikTok. That's what it's fine. It's yeah. whatever. That's fair. But it's more just like, I feel like I've become more sensitive to the murder. <laughs> It, and that's what that show is about. I yeah. mean, there's some cases where it isn't necessarily murder, but like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel no, like back totally in fair. high school, I could have binged it till three in the morning oh, and yeah. then been like, okay, I'm going to sleep like a baby. <laughs> yeah. I, I, would, I would watch Bones like that. Yeah. I was like, I'm completely desensitized to what a dead body might look like. Right. But now I'm like, oh, God. No. What? No, I could like ah, no. watching any kind of like thriller or anything like that. Like uh-uh. I'm like it has to be 9 a.m. on a Saturday. Exactly so. early. So I don't know if rebooting is the right word, but they're like bringing Criminal Minds back on Paramount Plus. I think Shelby sends me TikToks about it, which is Shelby. I appreciate you, and I love you, and I appreciate that you initially. You tried to include me in the Criminal Minds stuff. The only reason I know who Matthew Gray Goobler is is because of Tumblr. It's the only reason yeah. that I know who he is. And he, apparently he goes to Williamsburg a lot. Oh. Because his dad used to live there. Cool. And so he has been in my hometown multiple times. And people will, like, post on Facebook, Matthew Gray Goobler is at Aromas. Go, go, go. Ah. <laughs> and he'll just, like, stop for fans and say hey and take pictures and he's like i'm so excited to see you guys how, how are I, you today how and have I'm i like, never known this he based on like tiktoks and gifs i've seen he looks like he gives really good hugs even though he's like one of he falls into the category of man that i qualify as lanky noodle boy yes you're correct <laughs> and but he looks like he just gives nice hugs i think it's because he can because he's so tall he can assa- essentially envelop just, you like, wraps you up. yeah <laughs> um, like a noodly tortilla no i don't like that so let's get back into our uh, how did we get here i'm not remember. sure but it's fine okay we got there <laughs> we're back we're back baby so Anna Schneider had her baby. Everything's okay. Yay! On August 10th, five days after Anna Schneider had been attacked, the community of Gretna, just over the river from New Orleans, experienced their own Axeman nightmare. No. No. Tales of the Axeman were terrorizing the citizens of New Orleans at this point. An 18-year-old Pauline Bruno and her younger sister Mary were paranoid about meeting the shadow. Unfortunately, their nightmare came to life when they woke to noise from their elderly uncle's room and went to investigate. As they came into the room, they saw a dark, heavy-set man wearing a dark suit and a slouched hat standing by the bed. The girls screamed in fear and the man went running out the door, fleeing the home. The girls said he left so quickly it was, quote, almost as if he had wings, end quote. 
Their uncle rose from the bed, even with two large axe wounds in his head. Y'all need to sit down. I don't know if it's like a thing. You know, this is the early 1900s. We're just busting through without antibiotics, without medicine. Like, just raw dodging just... life. <laughs> Correct. I'm fine. I'm it's fine. All fine. I'll just drink some whiskey. Let's go. Take out my tooth. Truly. Ah. Their uncle took a few steps and then fell to the floor. What? Because of course. Really? You have an axe wound to the head, sir. Before losing consciousness, he said to the girls, quote, I don't know who did it, end quote. He's like, gotta get the facts straight in case I don't wake up. I want to make sure that you know that I don't know who it is. Catch me trying to write stuff in my own blood if it ever came to that. Like, you know, if I'm like, I'm going to be like, height, (laughs) race, if I know them, their initials. God forbid that ever happens to you. I mean, I hope not. Yeah. Knock Knock on on what? Knock on all the wood. But like, I'm just saying, like. I appreciate that at least, hopefully, there's some kind of forethought. While you're dying. Oh, I've already talked about, like, if I get kidnapped, I, this hair falls out so quick. I'm, like, shoving it in the seams of their car. My DNA is going to be everywhere. I'd be spitting everywhere. I'd be licking doorknobs. (laughs) Oh, God. What? What? (laughs) You're in the back of a car that has a child lock, and you're just like. The kidnapper's like, literally stop. It's the most disgusting thing. Please stop. Oh, but, oh, my gosh. I'm just picturing. That would be, you know, that's. You know those videos of like the reasons why I kidnapper would be back. Returns it's you. just me licking things. But like, <laughs> okay, but imagine though the character. You know, you. Th- I feel like we all think like, oh, murderers are like these depraved people who they don't care about anything. But it's just this very like fastidious person Clen- that just clean. turns to you and is like, "Don't you know there's a pandemic happening?" <laughs> And then, like, knocks you out so you stop licking stuff. Like, or hopefully would just let me out of the car and be like, you know what? No. No, you've seen too much. That's the thing. Well, the hope is that they leave me alive. Just close your eyes. Just be like, I haven't seen you. Just <laughs> licking. You are Spoon Licker. That is your name. <laughs> Tis I, Spoon Licker. Spoon Licker. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Happy Yule! (laughs) Not yet. It's spooky season. It's it's spooky season. It's spooky. It's essentially a spooky season until it is festive season, and then it is a spooky season all over again. That's how my life functions. Oh, I don't know if that's for everybody else, but for me, take a vacay for Christmas, and you're like, it is a spooky season again. (laughs) It's just me with like skulls and crossbones, and (laughs) but the skull is wearing a Santa hat. Yeah. Except you are not, that's not you your aesthetic. You shake it and it jingles. That's what, like, I feel like you want your aesthetic to be, but it's not. It is not my aesthetic. No. It, it, no. That is Kelly and Ryan's aesthetic. Yes. I think mine is much more on, like, the mad scientist vibes or, like, hmm. the, like, mad archaeologist vibes. Interesting. Where it's, like, lots of old books, lots of dusty, smelly things. Smelly, like, is in, like, good smelly stuff, not, like, smelly is in, like, there's uh, a dead body in the you closet. You don't know. So back to murder. Right. <laughs> sorry. Having to bring it down so hard is, I'm so sorry, y'all. So a patrolman had heard the girl's screams and arrived almost immediately, but no trace of the axe man could be found. An hour after arriving at the charity hospital, Joseph Romano passed away. The police seemed to know what they were looking for now, and the axe man knew what to leave. Confoundingly, The attacker had brought an axe with him, but had not used it. He left it pristine in the bedroom and instead used Romano's axe and left the weapon in the backyard. Nothing had been stolen, but the attacker had clearly rummaged through items before leaving. Chisel marks were left on the door, but the axe man had given up on the door and removed a slat on the window instead to enter. Although not grocers, the girls and their uncle were Italian immigrants, and the immigrant community were feeling that they may be getting singled out by the shadowy murderer, but the whole city was gripped by the possibility that they could be next. 
a kind of mass hysteria ensued in the following months. Many called authorities on August 15, 1918, to report the Axeman dressed as a woman on Tulane Avenue and Broad Street. I don't know why they specifically thought that it was the Axeman, but that was all the information that was given. A woman panicked on August 21st when she saw a stranger jumping a fence while brandishing an axe, which I feel is justified. Yeah, that feels valid. Even if it's like, oh, this is my house and my axe. What are you doing? Jump? Why are you jumping the fence, man? Yeah. One man even claimed he emptied a shotgun in an attempt to kill a fleeing axe man. Some families started to sleep with one member awake in turns to listen out for a chiseling against the door. Which I would hate that if I were the one that was staying up in order to do that. No thanks. Just stick a ton of stuff in front of it. Put a new lock on, like, the actual, like, door. I don't know. Because he can't get through the panel. He gets through by, like, unlocking the door. So, like, if you put yeah. a lock on the, like, a, like what is it, a chain lock? Oh, yeah. So, like, you know, it's attached to the wall, essentially. Mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Here I am, like, I'm not losing sleep over the possibility that I might die. <laughs> it's probably not a good way to go about my life, huh? I mean, at least she'll be well-rested. <laughs> well, a well-rested corpse. <laughs> they barely have to put makeup on me. Yeah. You won't have these circles under your eyes. More credible reports came in as well. Joseph LeBeouf, a grocer who had lived a block away from Joseph Romano and his nieces, remembered that someone had removed a panel from his back door on July 28th. He hadn't been home that day and had decided to just repair it. I feel like that's something you're like, hmm, this stuff I've been reading about in the papers. Yeah. But nothing was taken, so he was just like, oh, I guess I'll repair this. Someone tried to break in, but they didn't take anything, so hmm. whatever. Another grocer named Arthur Recknagel remembered in June that he woke up one morning with his back door missing a panel and an unused axe in his backyard. The day after Joseph Romano was attacked, Al Durand found an axe and a chisel at his back door, but no one had managed to get in. Nick Asunto could have been the next victim for the axe man, but woke up the morning of August 30th by noises from downstairs. When he got to the top of the stairs, he saw at the bottom a dark, heavy-set man standing with an axe in his hand. Nick shouted, and the figure ran out the front door. Despite all these possible attacks or false alarms, Joseph Romano's death was the last of the Axemans for a while, and some speculated that he may have been arrested, moved, or had died. Whatever it was, New Orleans was starting to settle into a sense of safety. Unfortunately, he would return. March 7, 1919, the Axeman broke into the home of Santo Vicari on the outskirts of New Orleans. The grocer woke up safely with his family the next morning, but found a backdoor panel missing, as well as two boxes of candy, money, and an overcoat gone. This may have been a copycat, since the family was unharmed, but the axe really spooked them. Just days later, the Cortemiglias were not so lucky. On March 9, 1919, at 7 a.m., Hazel Johnson went to the Cortemiglia's corner grocery in Gretna, as she usually did. Which, 7 a.m. to get groceries. Girl, dang. It was closed, unusual for the store that often opened by 5 a.m. Thinking that they must be preparing to open up, Hazel went around back and saw that the rear door was missing a panel. Panicked, Hazel didn't know what to do. A passerby, Aaron Clay, encouraged the girl to go inside to see if anything was wrong. No! She cautiously entered and came out screaming from what she saw. Side note, monster Aaron Clay. Yeah, <laughs> like, really? What? What? And the newspapers ripped into him. They were like, this cowardly man. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Let this young girl go into a murder scene. Get out of here. Like, no, thank you. Also, which I feel so bad. I'm sure she was like, well, this elder, this older person, yeah. person who is older than me, is telling me it's fine to just go check. I guess I'll just go. No, oh my gosh. <laughs> I would I would have been like, bye. No, thank and you. And she never spoke to a stranger again. Truly. 
A rival grocer across the street named Yorlando Giordano heard Hazel scream and ran over. He went inside and found Charles Cordomiglia unconscious on the floor with a clear axe wound in his head. Rosie Cordomiglia was screaming on the floor, five axe wounds in her head, holding her deceased two-year-old daughter. Yorlando tried to comfort Rosie while his son Frank went for help. Both Cordomiglias were taken to Charity Hospital for treatment. Their daughter was determined dead on the scene. The police found a well-used axe under the back steps. The entire home rifled through, including the face of a clock removed to search for something, but again, nothing was taken. A box filled with money and jewelry was untouched, $129 in cash under the mattress, and a thirty-eight revolver were left behind. And again, no fingerprints or even footprints were found. Both Rosie and Charles survived the attack with fractured skulls. Rosie remembers waking up to her husband fighting off a large white man with an axe. She saw him strike her husband and Charles hit the floor. The man then went after her daughter while she tried to fight him off and then her. Just after a few days of recovery, Rosie made a surprising accusation. She claimed that it was Yorlando and Frank Giordano who had attacked her family. Charles denied this accusation against his neighbors, saying, quote, I saw the man well, and he was a stranger. No, it was not Frank Giordano. End quote. Regardless, the police arrested the father and son, even without any clear evidence. The father was 67, and the son 17 and engaged to be married. Even so, Sheriff Marrero of Jefferson Parish wanted the wave of terror to be over, telling the press, quote, I am confident we have the right men and that the Cordomiglias will recover to tell the complete story of the attack made upon them, end quote. Police Superintendent Mooney doubted that they had the right men, however, as he assigned special detectives to continue to track down the real killer. The Good for you, sir. Yeah. The two were found guilty of the attack and murder of the two-year-old. Frank was sentenced to hang, while his father was sentenced to life in prison. After the trial, Charles divorced his wife. He was a bit like, I because she was the one who was adamant about oh. it. it. was these two guys. It was, he was these like, two men. And he was like, that is absolutely not literally true. Literally, stop. Stop. They came to help us? Yeah. A year after her attack, Rosie Cordomiglia reversed her claim saying that she had accused the Giordanos out of spite and jealousy. Since her testimony was the only evidence against the Giordanos, both father and son were released from jail in 1920. Good. Yeah. But this is an interesting, like, because they were both grocers, because they were both Italian, like, they literally crossed the street from one another, Mm -hmm. and she just wanted them gone. It was this weird thing. They literally had come Girl, to your he has aid. has five wounds to the head and assumes she's going to recover and is like, let's get rid of the competition. Right? Ruthless! Right? Aye. Three days after the Cordomiglias were attacked, a letter was published in new- newspapers around New Orleans by someone claiming to be the Axeman. Dun, dun, dun. Quote, Hell, March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. Jeff the Monk. Stop. That was exactly where (laughs) my brain was. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the axe man. 
I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise, and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. Now, to be exact, at 2.15, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music. And I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on a specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse. Hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee, I have been, am, and will be, the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fantasy. Signed, The Axeman. End quote. Wow. This marketing campaign is out of control. Truly. Also, you're... The, few like the first few paragraphs my brain the entire time was like this is jeff the mongoose this is jeff march 19th the tuesday in question in the letter was reportedly the loudest night in new orleans history whether or not the real axeman had written the letter the citizens took it seriously and blasted jazz music from their record players, jazz bands played in home lounges or at block parties, and people made sure they were in the vicinity of some kind of jazz to keep themselves safe. A morbid piece of sheet music was circulated called The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz that night, the cover of which was a family playing a piano while frantically looking around themselves for the murderer. No one was killed that night and the citizens breathed a small sigh of relief. But again, the Axeman was not done. Louis Bessemer was acquitted on all charges of the attack on Harriet Lowe on May 1, 1919, after a 10-minute jury deliberation. There was no evidence that he had been the one to attack her, and it made no sense when he himself was attacked the same way. Mm -hmm. That's just because it fit in the timeline. I wanted to make sure you guys knew. Louis Bessemer, he was acquitted. He's all good. The late spring and early summer were quiet, but there were four more attacks in the next year linked to the Axeman. On August 10, 1919, Steve Boca, a grocer, was attacked while he slept. He woke and saw his attacker only as a shadow. The blow to his head was enough to knock him out, but he regained consciousness after the attacker left and ran to his neighbor Frank Janusa, where he again collapsed. Nothing was taken from his home, and the back door had a panel chiseled away. Steve survived, but remembered basically nothing of the attack. On September 2nd, William Carson, a pharmacist, fired shots at an intruder in the night. An axe was left behind by the fleeing intruder, and the back door was broken. William was unharmed. The next day, young Sarah Lauman was attacked with an axe while she slept. Neighbors noticed she wasn't rousing at her usual hour and went to check on her as she lived alone, and found her unconscious in her bed, missing teeth and with a severe head injury. A bloody axe was left in the front lawn of the apartment building. She suffered a concussion but recovered, and she had no idea what had happened. The last attack of the Axeman came on October 27, 1919. Grocer Mike Pepitone was killed in his bed with the usual blow to the head. His wife had heard a noise from upstairs and went to the bedroom just as a man wielding an axe fled her home. The usual clues, bloody axe, back door panel, and room ransacked but intact, were left behind. Mrs. Pepitone and her six children were left unharmed. From May 23, 1918 to October 27, 1919, the Axeman terrorized Orleanians. 
He seemed to be satiated after his last attack and slunk back to the goo from whence he came, never to be seen again. So let's move on into theories. Our first, Mafia. Hmm. The authorities, taking into account that the majority of their apparent victims of the Axeman were Italian immigrants, thought that the Italian Mafia and the Black Hand were responsible for the attacks. While criminal Italian gangs were definitely active in New Orleans at this time, the Mafia was no secret organization. It was a social and well-known one formed in Sicily and South Italy. At this time, it was a form of behavior, not a formal organization, according to the historian Robert Lombardo. It was like a code of conduct. The whole idea that we have now of like, you don't hurt women or children, you know, you everything is a tit-for-tat situation. Like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours it started just as the code of conduct. A practice called black hand crime, pretty much petty extortion, was something that was prevalent at the time among many Italian communities. If a victim didn't provide the payment asked for, they were threatened with violence and would succumb to it if they didn't pay up. So the black hand was the organization and this was their specific crime that they would commit to get people to, you know, we'll protect you if you pay us and not everyone wanted to do that. A vendetta stemming from a blood feud between families could also be the culprit at the time of any type of murder, an eye for an eye. Regardless, to distill the violence down to one organization due to their immigrant status doesn't cover all of the Axeman attacks, nor does it help to find the actual killer. Even with the violence that was prevalent throughout New Orleans due to the Mafia and the Black Hand activity, these attacks seemed pointed and were never a gang situation or akin to a vendetta attack, all except one. Mike Pepitone. The Pepitones had a long-standing vendetta against them by a rival family, and it has been noted in later research that the likelihood of Mike's death being mafia or vendetta-related is high, since the rest of his family was left unscathed and he might not have been killed by an axe at all, might have been made to look like such, it's more likely that that was a blood feud situation going on. The vendetta theory also worked for the Cordomiglia's case against the Giordanos, but unraveled quickly after Rosie came forward with the truth. But that was why the police were so ready to accept it. They're both Italian grocers working in close proximity. Of course, they would be rivals if there was something that needed to be taken care of. Like, of course, they'd call a hit out on them. Why not? But racism could have also been a motive, and it was working in the favor of the police to use this as a way to be like, it's fine, it's just because it's mafia. No. For a city teeming with immigrants, many were considered the other as the white Anglo-Saxons ruled the town while Italians, African-Americans, Chinese, and other non-white groups worked side by side in fields and shops around the city. It was even noted by a contemporary writer that Italians were treated with a familiarity by African-Americans who would have never done so with, with other whites. The Italians were seen as swarthy, dark, and violent, and not white by, an Anglo, by the Anglo-Saxon community. By the early 20th century, 19% of groceries were Italian-owned, and by 1920, they owned almost half of the groceries in the city. This rise of immigrants to middle-class status was threatening to other white-owned businesses and groups, and this could have sparked a spree that resulted in the attacks against specifically Italian grocers by the end of the 1910s. It's a possibility. It's not something that anyone has any clear evidence about, but the racism existed, so the ire existed there. But everyone seems to have seen one man in particular, except a few accounts. The man was tall, dark, heavy set, and wore almost all black or at least very dark clothing. The MO for each case followed almost the same lines, and the survivors who did recall his form called him a shadow. The physical qualities that would have distinguished him at the time point mostly in one direction, white. Or to be more distinct with the language of the early 20th century, Italian. Calling him dark rather than the N-word in descriptions points to the likelihood that the man wouldn't have been the African-American that Louis Bessemer would remember, or any other African-American for that matter. But as there are no real descriptions of the man's face or other features, just his shape, it can't be conclusive. 
New Orleans Police Superintendent Frank Mooney believed that these attacks were perpetrated by one man, saying he was, quote, a Jekyll and Hyde personality like Jack the Ripper. Suddenly the impulse to kill comes upon him and he must obey it, end quote, what we would now know as a serial killer. There was one suspect that the authorities believed to be the real Axeman. He had many names, from Joseph Monfrey or Frank Mumfrey to his nickname Doc, among others, and was known for dealing with the Black Hand and as a gunman for hire for the Mafia. He had been in prison for a bombing of a grocery store from 1911 to 1918, and so would have been free at the time of the collected Axeman slayings. He was also serving time for a burglary during the hiatus the Axeman seemed to have from August 1918 to March 1919. The reason he came on the radar for police was because Mrs. Pepitone claimed she recognized him when her new husband brought him home as a friend. She shot him after he attempted to extort her. The only issue is that this claim may have actually been a bungled story in the press, and he may not have actually been the person Esther Pepitone claimed. There is no police record that she killed him or was tried for it. There is, however, a death record saying Joseph Munfrey, a Joseph Munfrey, from 1921, died as a result of violence, while papers reported him dying at the hands of Mrs. Pepitone in either 1921 or 1922. All of this is sensationalism at its finest. They took a name, they ran with it. There were other attacks in 1910 and 1911 that seemed to fit into the Axeman's M.O. in another area of Louisiana. These could have been the first taste of murder for the monster before the spree was necessary in his mind, an escalation. Um, these attacks were also on Italian groceries and involved axes as the murder weapons, and this would follow the trend we now know when it comes to serial killers. With as many possible victims that the Axeman had, it could have been copycat killers or multiple others taking advantage of an easy person to blame in the paranoia. While a grocer, Louis Bessemer was Polish, though still an immigrant, the Schneiders were neither grocers nor Italian, and neither was Sarah Lauman. Hers in particular, having been the only person in her home, but also within an apartment building, seems to be an attack that wanted to look like the Axeman. Very singled out and potentially easy to, to see or hear commotion happening. And lastly, there is a supernatural element possible in all of this. While the letter doesn't necessarily automatically come from the being responsible, they did claim to be from hell. And the Bruno girls thought that him leaving so fast, he must have wings. So a jazz-loving, Italian-hating demon could be the one who had wielded the axe. But we'll never know. The end. <laughs> I'm sorry it was so sad, you guys. <laughs> Bummer. Bummer. Um, there was another theory that someone floated that was like, maybe he was just trying to get everyone to listen to jazz. No, it's <laughs> it just like, a marketing scheme. Just a huge marketing scheme. But like, you know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, I don't know. I was listening to jazz while I was uh, doing this research, and a song came up in a couple different, like, renditions of different people singing it, and it was called The Boogeyman, and I was like, this is too close to home, Skip. <laughs> I don't like this one, Skip. <laughs> what do you think? I just, like, I feel like if it's the, like, hating Italians part of it, one would think that they would then take the money. Like, if they were pissed that, like, Italians who they viewed as lower, like... We're encroaching on business. Yeah. Wouldn't you, like, take their money, too, in addition to killing them? But then also, like, some of the scenes, he killed one person and then left. Like, the two girls. He easily yeah. could have been like, done. <laughs> no witnesses. But instead he left. I don't know if maybe so it was it's... the noise. Because essentially all of the victims had been found after obviously but hadn't made noise before being attacked that would have alerted anybody yeah. so the fact that the girls screamed the fact that um william screamed when he got to the top of the stairs and was like what are you doing here and like he ran mm -hmm. so i think maybe it was because it wasn't quiet enough that he knew that someone would hear and come running mm -hmm. but then i'm like okay so the magios are in a room next to like, a essentially paper-thin wall. Yeah. You wouldn't hear, like, thumping? 
Yeah. Like that. I don't know. Maybe you're like trying to be respectful because it's your brother and his wife. And so you're like, maybe they're having some fun. I should just pretend like I'm not hearing nothing. La 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 la. <laughs> like, I don't know. Or like Sarah in her apartment building. Like that can't have been quiet. No. So I don't know. Or if the if the murderer was in some kind of psychosis, maybe the, the screaming or the yelling like jolted them out him of it up and then he was like ah, yeah i'm gonna run away well and it's interesting that um the superintendent mooney made the observation of like the possibility of this being a person who's leading a normal life and then going out and doing this stuff is high yeah. it's just interesting to see as like you know you don't have the language of serial killer yet you can't mark that but it could be anyone. Like, this isn't, like, an escaped a person from a, a insane asylum that right. they would have thought, you know, oh, so this is the person that we're going after. It was someone that they had no clue who it was and still don't. And we barely had, like, I had to scrounge for any, who any of the suspects mm. were. And, like, even when they did arrest people, they couldn't connect anybody. And the only reason that they ended up convicting anyone, luckily eventually lifting the charges, but, like, the only reason they ever convicted anybody is because someone said it was you and pointed fingers. Right. So, like, it's just, I mean, in 1920s, you, don't, you can't really do, like, DNA analysis or, like, you know, lifting yeah. fingerprints or anything like that. But it's just disappointing because it literally was just, like, dropping everything, here's all my stuff. Yeah. Here you go. You can't catch me. Yeah, it's one of those that's like, it's never going to be solved unless someone like is remodeling their house and they like lift a floorboard and find like a diary or something. Yeah. And even then it's like, is it real? How do we, it, yeah. yeah. How do you prove that that's real so many years after the fact? Yeah. So yeah, one of America's first few serial killers, the Axeman of Nolens. He kind of looks like the hat man in all iterations of, like, when people draw him, which I'm, is just interesting. I'm just picturing Wilson Fisk from the Marvel, like, Netflix universe. Because you keep describing him as, like, a tall, very broad white guy. Like, big white guy. Yeah. And that's what he looks like, Kingpin. Yeah. And what time is it? I think it might be mailbag moment. have a heart fart from pod fiend Haley. hey and the subject line is what historical figure am i yes oh guys still answer this question i want to know the answers to this Haley writes i would love to be alice roosevelt correct yes <laughs> i feel like she and i have the same chaotic energy for those unfamiliar with alice roosevelt she was the oldest daughter of theodore roosevelt and then Haley writes, Welcome to Watch Mojo, where we'll be counting down Alice Roosevelt's chat five wildest moments. <laughs> and they put the emoji that's like, like tongue out, cross-eyed. Love it. Number five. Alice would carry a pistol with her on long train journeys so that she could lean out of the window and shoot at telephone poles whenever she got bored. <laughs> I really love that. Not for protection, not because she's the president's daughter. No, no. Nope. I'm bored. Number four. Known for smoking often in public, her dad told her that there would be no smoking under his roof. Alice then took to smoking on the White House roof. I love that. I really hope that there's some kind of plaque up there that says Alice Roosevelt was here. <laughs> Number three. When it came time for the Roosevelt family to move out of the White House, Alice buried a voodoo doll of the new first lady, Nellie Taft, in the front yard. Alice would later go on to be banned from the Taft White House. Oh my gosh, is that still there? I would assume no, but Probably like that not. has to be in a museum, Smithsonian please, guys. Somewhere. 
Number two, after having a double mastectomy later in life, she insisted on referring to herself as, quote, Washington's only topless octogenarian. And number one, Alice was most often known for carrying a pet snake named Emily Spinach in her handbag, sometimes taking her out and wearing the snake around her arm. And then Haley sent us photos comparing Alice with her dog Leo to Haley and their dog Rocco. I love it. I say yes, Haley. That is that We're is your past it. life. We're here for it. I love it. I do. I love Alice Roosevelt. And of course, there's that famous quote that Theodore Roosevelt said to someone who was like, okay, you need to get Alice under control. And he was like, I can either, either run the country or control, control my Alice. Daughter. And I can't do both. <laughs> yeah. I can't do both. I'm picking one. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love that so much. That is a good choice. What a good heart fart. Yeah. That's the last one currently in the mailbag. So if you want to send us a watch mojo style <laughs> countdown, feel free. See, we take anything. It doesn't even have to be your own personal experience or story or no, dream guys, or anything. Just talk to us. We want to hear what you're all about. You can send those. Oh, I'm so sorry. Let me let me let you finish your sting. No, I'm under. I'm underscoring. Oh, you. I see. Well, let me get my let me get my jazz voice ready. You can find the link to our email at our website. This podcast doesn't exist.com. Drop a line, ladies and gents, and all the others in between. We love you all, and we hope you remember this podcast. Doesn't exist. Okay, bye. <laughs>